Welcome to the Heartbreak to Happiness Show with Sara Davison. If you're struggling with a breakup and you feel shocked, angry, betrayed, devastated, or sad and alone, then this podcast is for you. Best-selling author and award-winning host Sara Davison shares how you too can get on with your life to heal, grow, and move from heartbreak to happiness. Here's your host, Sara Davison. Welcome back to the show. And today, my guest is Charlie Morley. Charlie is a best-selling author and teacher of lucid dreaming, shadow integration, and mindfulness of dream and sleep. He's been lucid dreaming for over 20 years. And he continues to teach people with trauma-affected sleep a set of practices called mindfulness of dream and sleep. His 2021 book, Wake Up to Sleep, is a practical guide to these practices. Charlie has been the lead consultant on scientific studies into lucid dreaming at both Swansea University and the Institute of Noetic Science. Charlie has also spoken at both Oxford and Cambridge Universities, the Ministry of Defence Mindfulness Symposium, and the Houses of Parliament on Buddhism and Youth Culture and the Mindfulness Association Annual Conferences. So I am super excited to welcome Charlie Morley to the show. Welcome, Charlie. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, my goodness. It's a pleasure. I know that my listeners are going to get so much from this today. So please start by telling us all a little bit about you and what you do. Sure. So I write books about sleep and dreams. Um, My first couple of books were specifically around lucid dreaming. So lucid dreaming is the practice of training the mind to know that you're dreaming as you're dreaming. So if you've ever been in a dream and you're still asleep, but in the dream you go, oh, wow, this is actually a dream right now. That's a lucid dream. And once you have that awareness, you can direct the dream at will. Um, The kind of elevator pitch on this is anything you can treat through hypnotherapy, you can also treat through lucid dreaming. Because in a similar way as a hypnotherapist takes a strand of the conscious mind down into the subconscious and plants a suggestion of healing intent, such as I live a healthy lifestyle free of the addiction of cigarettes or something like that. In a lucid dream, you're doing the same thing, but you're taking a strand of the conscious mind right down into the depths of the unconscious, simply because you can't get more unconscious than asleep. So you get right to the bottom. But you can do the same thing about planting seeds of healing intent. So it can be really powerful treatment for PTSD, for trauma in a child work, um, as well as kind of confidence boosting. Again, a lot of the same stuff you can use for hypnotherapy. Um, So I primarily write books about lucid dreaming and then run workshops and retreats about that. Um, And But for the last few years, my main focus has been on uh, shadow work. So looking at transforming shame into acceptance and fear into love. And then that transitioned into working with people with trauma. So I started doing a lot of work with military veterans and serving military personnel. And the new book, Wake Up to Sleep, five powerful practices to transform trauma for peaceful sleep and mindful dreams is the very long subtitle. Uh, but that basically sums up what the, what the book is about, um, is based on the work I've been doing with veterans and, and traumatized populations. I hate that phrase, but that's the one we've got, um, which has now been adapted for kind of everyday use. I used to say everyday trauma. What I realize now is that the traumas of everyday people are just as um, affecting, if not more so, than the traumas of a a war zone 
you know, whether a war zone is a war zone, whether it's a literal war zone or a familial war zone or the war zone of an abusive relationship, it all leads to a similar trauma. Um, so now I teach a, a series of sleep and dream practices as well as breath work, deep relaxation, mindfulness practices in the daytime to help people integrate the uh, mitigating effects of trauma and PTSD on their sleep and dreams. Wow. Well, that sounds like a great recipe for my listeners, because I know a lot of people listening are going through very difficult breakups. Mm. And one of the things I hear most in my coaching clinic is people struggling to sleep. Mm. So obviously, you know, nightmares or just not being able to fall asleep or waking up very often. How can you help with that, Charlie? Mm. So first of all, I, I want your listeners to know that I am also have been going through for the past year and a half a breakup so a 10 year relationship with my wife came to an end and what i noticed through that process was number 1 how affected my sleep and dreams were um so i had this very kind of ironic moment of being this supposed sleep and dream expert who wasn't getting any sleep and was having terrible nightmares because of what he was doing <laughs> so that is very natural. So anyone who is going through a breakup or has been through a traumatic experience, whether it's romantic relationships or familial relationships, your sleep and dreams will be affected. That's going to happen. So that's totally normal. And one of the things I look at in the book is actually how each different stage of sleep is affected. For example, like the hypnagogic state when we're falling asleep at night and you're transitioning into sleep, you're still half awake, half asleep. In that state, very, very common for flashbacks to occur because there's something called the egocentric preference system, which is essentially a posh word for the part of the mind that keeps out all the nasty stuff, all the stuff you don't want to think about, all the, the kind of heartache and heartbreak that you, you're trying not to think about during the day. That's pushed down by this egocentric preference system. Now, when we enter the hypnagogic state and the brain starts to shift from the left brain dominance of the day to the right brain dominance of the night, that egocentric preference system shuts down and suddenly all the stuff we've been trying to suppress, bam, 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 it pops up into our consciousness. So just knowing that that's normal, it doesn't mean you're going mad. It doesn't mean you've been re-traumatized. It doesn't mean you've made no progress. It is totally normal if when you're falling asleep tonight, that person or that thing or that situation that you haven't wanted to think about suddenly pops up as an intrusive thought. And in fact, it's not an intrusive thought. It's, it can be, it, we, we can even harness that to go, okay, well, that's what I've been suppressing during the day. That's what I need to be looking at now. It's like the mind telling us this is, in, this is important to me. This is what I've been pushing, pushing down. So there's a way that we can actually use sleep and dreams um, to kind of track our progress. You know, there are loads of practices we can do if we do find that we're having nightmares or insomnia or our sleep's been affected by uh, the stresses of breakup. Um, we don't have to be passive observers of this. We can actually use certain practices that work directly to integrate the effects of trauma and then use a, a sleep diary, like a nocturnal journal, to trace not only like how much sleep we're getting and how affected our sleep is, but also our dreams. Because your dreams reflect your internal world. If you're going through a breakup right now, I really advise keeping a dream diary. Start writing down your dreams if you can. And for anyone listening who thinks, oh, I don't remember my, or I don't dream, know this, everybody dreams every single night. There's no way to stop the human brain from dreaming. In fact, dreaming is prioritized over other forms of sleep. So if someone were to say, oh, I didn't have any light sleep last night or any deep sleep last night, 
I mean, that wouldn't happen either, but there, there would be a stronger argument for that than saying I didn't dream last night because dreaming is prioritized. So you're definitely dreaming. Why don't we remember? When did you last try? So tonight, as you fall asleep, simply set that intention. Tonight, I really want to remember my dreams. And often that's enough. And then just start noting what's going on in my mind right now. You know, just yesterday, I went to my therapist and, you know, spent the hour saying, you know, what's going on in here, doc? As I point to my head, if I really want to know what's going on there, look at my dream diary. Just before this, this interview, when I was flicking through my dream diary and I put in, which is in my phone, and I put in the search term Jade the name of my former wife and current best friend, um, and saw all the dreams that popped up with her. And we were talking about how, when I had my real breakthrough into recovery three or four months ago, the dreams about Jade completely changed. Suddenly they were very positive dreams. They were dreams of kind of moving forward, whereas before the dreams had been uh, quite negative. So you can really chart your progress through your sleep and dreams if you're going through through a breakup or divorce. Wow, that's really powerful. I mean, is it true, and I hear this in my clinic, and I know for myself, that during the day, you think you're coping okay. Like, I, you know, I think I'm pretty good at dying down the negative emotions and doing things to, to work through and process things mentally. But then at night, if I'm going through any sort of challenge during the day or from past trauma, it can come back in really violent nightmares. Yes, that is very, very common. And again, totally normal and totally okay. Um, in fact, often it's it's the more we think we're coping in the day and the better we're doing. Often as some sort of compensation for that, we might have quite a juicy nightmare. Well, let's look at nightmares, but we, we need to try and reframe our view of what a nightmare is doing. So a nightmare is not punishment. Uh, it is not a sign that we are still traumatized necessarily. Um, it is definitely not a sign that we're, you know, that, that we're not making any progress. A nightmare is in many cases a sign of a healing mind. So some of the veterans that I've been working with, if they had a traumatic experience, you know, five years ago and haven't had any nightmares about it, but then when they start to do the work on their sleep and dream, they start having nightmares, which is not common, but it does sometimes happen. I am not at all perturbed by that. In many ways, ah, okay, brilliant. Now you're ready to look at it. Because the nightmare is a sign of a healing mind. It's a bit like a scab. You know, if we, if we cut our arm, we want a scab to form. We want the white blood cells to appear, the platelets, the whatever the, the rest of the process is to create a scab. And the scab might be unsightly and it might be kind of, we might hide it from others and we might want to pick it all the time and it might kind of itch and hurt a little bit. But without the scab, we're going to have a gangrenous arm every time we graze it so in many ways a nightmare a sign of a healing mind so if you are having nightmares um, about the traumatic experience not only can that be a good sign but there's actually a, a study that came out a few years ago an american study that showed this was actually a it was a it was um people with depression caused by single trauma events so many of them it was due to breakup uh, because that's one of the easiest ways to get single trauma events when you're looking for research participants because so many of us go through breakups. That's another great thing to know. So this is, you know, it's such a natural part of being human, although it's just fucking horrible when you're in it. So anyway, they found this study that the participants who were dreaming, but not dreaming about the person who broke their heart or their heartbreak scenario, um, recovered from their depression at a normal rate. So they still recovered, but at a normal rate. Those people in the study who were dreaming specifically about the person who broke their heart or specifically about the heartbreak situation recovered quicker 
Now, they don't know quite why this is, but they assume that if we can be dreaming about the thing that has traumatized us, then it works in a similar way as psychotherapy. So we might go to a psychotherapist and in the safe space of the psychotherapeutic dyad, the therapist says, tell me what happened. And by saying it again out loud in a safe space, the brain can remove the kind of hooks of trauma and aversion, which we so often have when recounting a traumatic experience. It seems like the dreams work in a similar way. So essentially, nightmares are a good sign. They can be a sign of healing in almost all cases. However, when people have clinical PTSD, but I think possibly subclinical too, I know a lot of people who are way more traumatized, but somehow just don't meet the criteria of PTSD because it's literally a tick box. I mean, there is a something called the PTSD scale. And if you don't meet that certain scale, you could be one point off and you're subclinical, which is ridiculous. So whatever, people with, with a lot of trauma, whether they've been diagnosed with PTSD or not, often have elevated levels of stress hormones. Naturally, we're traumatized. We're in fight or flight the whole time. A unique aspect of dreaming is that a neurochemical in the brain, neuroadrenaline, which is present in the brain in low doses all the time. It basically just keeps us alert, right? It's low doses, but all the time, except for two and a half hours a day when we dream, which is the average amount we dream each night based on eight hours, right? So for two and a half hours a day, this very specific brain hormone is removed from the brain. Why? To allow you to dream about traumatic experiences and not be re-traumatized. The removal of the stress hormone makes the brain a safe space. It makes it like the therapeutic dialogue room, right? People in PTSD, they found, because their stress hormones are so elevated, when they dream, the brain doesn't remove that stress hormone, which means they're dreaming in a brain that has not been made safe by the removal of that stress hormone. So what does that mean? It means when people with PTSD have nightmares, they can be re-traumatized and the healing capacity of the dream, where the dream is like a scab, the dream is like a healing uh, therapeutic dialogue, is negated. So for almost all people, nightmares are, are good and they're healing. For people with, high, with PTSD or high levels of trauma, they can be re-traumatizing. So how do we deal with that? We need to remove the levels of stress, or, sorry, reduce the levels of stress hormone in the brain before we go to sleep. How? Slow, deep breathing is the quickest way to do this. So when we first met and we had a one-on-one -on -one together, we did a, a practice called coherent breathing. Yeah, we did. It was awesome. Hey, absolutely. It's a lovely practice. So most of us, and right now, because I'm excited telling you about this, are breathing at about 15 breaths a minute. That is very, very fast. Any breath rate over 10 breaths a minute actually activates the fight or flight system. So what does that mean? That means the radical statement that, yes, almost all of the human population are constantly in a state of fight or flight simply from the way we breathe. Coherent breathing asks us to breathe at five breaths a minute. That is 75% slower than usual. Because it is such a reduction in breath rate, it reduces stress levels very, very quickly. So if we can breathe, if before bed, we can spend like 20 minutes doing coherent breathing, breathing at four or five breaths a minute, which is very slow. I mean, this would be like, like breathing in, two, three, four, breathing out, two, three, four, very slow compared to how we usually breathe. You can do that for 20 minutes before bed. You will reduce the levels of stress hormone. 
meaning that when you enter the dream state, that level of the stress hormone will have been reduced already. Um, and we know that, that that works. So there is a Does way. Does it take that. 20 minutes to work? Or actually, it, gonna... it actually takes seven minutes specifically. Okay. They found that um, after about the seven minute mark, the parasympathetic nervous system is switched on regardless of what the subject is doing. So this is why it's not a mindfulness practice. It's not about, you know, the thoughts. You can be reading a book when you do coherent breathing. You could even be watching a horror movie. But as long as you breathe at that slow rate, the brain listens to the lungs. So, for example, if I got you to do this for the next seven minutes, don't do this, audience members. If you did this for the next seven minutes, <gasps> if you did the breath inhalation of fright or shock, you would eventually have a panic attack because eventually the brain would say, look, boy, lungs, you've been doing the breathing rate of shock for so long. I think we should probably go into shock right now. However, if you do the opposite, if you spend seven minutes going, ah, that universal sound of relaxation as you sit on the sofa, whether you're in Zambia, Zimbabwe, or down the road in Bermondsey, ah, that is the universal sound of relaxation. If you do that for seven minutes, eventually the brain goes, mate, you've been doing that for so long, regardless of the external environment, regardless of whether you're watching a horror movie, regardless of whether you're still texting your ex, I'm going to put you into relaxation response. And that's why that breathing is so good to do with veterans. Because um, army veterans have told me, oh, I don't do mindfulness. I don't do meditation. I've tried it before. I said, okay, don't. Do you breathe? Of course I'll breathe. Stupid question. All right. I just want you to breathe like this for seven minutes. If at the end of seven minutes, you don't feel much, much more relaxed, forget you met me. But give it a shot. And they will give it a shot. And after seven minutes, they're asking, can we do 10? So yeah, I'll do it breathing. <laughs> You can put it into YouTube. You'll find all the stuff. You've got apps, loads of different ones you can use, but essentially slow the breath down to five breaths a minute um, or less. That's amazing. I mean, I'm always talking in these episodes about how we do control the remote control to our own brain. Yeah. Most of us don't know how to use it because there's no instruction manual, is there? We just sort of figure this out. And, you know, the learned behaviors of, breathing quickly and, you know, reacting. We've always reacted. Maybe we learned that from our parents or from, you know, experiences in life. We just carry those coping strategies with us, thinking that that's what anyone does. But actually, we can take control of that and really dial down some of those negative feelings and emotions and things that are keeping us stuck, like you said, those traumatic nightmares. Um, and I know from our session that your breathing work was insane and has really helped me a lot. So, you know, just something you said there about that we get from our parents and stuff like that. Just an interesting thing. Um, in 1929, the average breath rate for American adults was 4.2 breaths a minute. 4.2. So now we breathe at 15 breaths a minute. 1920s, it was 4.2. In the 30s, it goes up to five. Even in the 70s, it was low as six breaths a minute. And in the 80s, um, 80, it does jump a bit. I think you're on about like um, 7.5 or 8.5 breaths a minute. But my point is, we used to breathe much, much slower. Now, what has happened since 1980 and now to double the rate of our breathing. And that's crazy to me. So when it seems unnatural to breathe so slow, we realize, no, you know, our grandparents and stuff were breathing that slow. This is why mindfulness meditation, 2000 years ago, when people said, just watch your breath, that was a very good instruction because people were breathing at about four breaths a minute coherently. 
Now, if we tell someone, just watch your breath, essentially what we're telling them to do is breathing at 15 breaths a minute, stay in fight or flight. I was like, when I came across that research, it blew my mind and I stopped teaching mindfulness to anyone with trauma. I do not wow. teach mindfulness anymore. There is no mindfulness in my latest book. There is loads of breath work though, because there's no point telling people to just watch the breath if they're breathing too fast. We need to slow the breath rate right down to a, and then mindfulness can come naturally. So what has led to us breathing faster? Yeah, so none of the research wants to go into this. It's all University of Buffalo in um, America, so people can Google this research. Um, none of them wanted to make that point. But if you look at, there's a big jump in the 1950s. And one per, the, the um, researcher who, told, who I heard talking about this for the first time, he theorizes that if you look at what happened in the 1950s in America, it's all from all American research, is suddenly the... Um, movement from people working out in the fields and stuff like that to office work and also mod cons suddenly people have um washing machines television i mean television is a big one suddenly we're watching tv uh processed food so all these things come together who knows um why we've got a, a jump of 50% since the 1980s, again, who knows? I would theorize probably the same stuff that's given us a 50% leap in the four major killers, heart disease, Alzheimer's, cancer, and uh, obesity. Possibly the same things, you know, more sedentary lifestyles, worse diet, um, environmental factors, um, lack of connection to nature. I mean, none of that scientifically supported. But it yeah. would, it's kind of weird, isn't it? Why are we breathing 75% quicker than our granddad did? Why are we doing that? What has happened in these generations? And anyone listening, please give, give me the answer because I haven't found it yet, but I know it's fishy. I mean, it is, it is fishy. I like that word. I mean, I think, you know, the fact is we're always striving, my fights, like the next thing and the next thing. We're never stopping to smell the roses along the way and take time out. And I suppose even doing the household jobs, everything's made so much simpler. So we can focus on go, go, go. What's next? What's, what's the next thing I need to achieve or do or tick off my list? Yeah. So, yeah, I think lockdown... Maybe it'd be interesting to see if the statistics have slowed that back down a little bit. Who knows that we've all been at home, not so much of that stress maybe from that, but then I guess there's stress from other things. So who knows, well, Charlie? That, it's that, that breathing stuff, that coherent breathing is very good for people with long COVID. Um, and it's a really good preventative for COVID because your possibility of getting COVID-19 is strongly influenced by your lung capacity. People with much greater lung capacity um, either recover much better or, or basically don't die um, if they get COVID. And one of the best ways to strengthen your lung capacity is slow, deep breathing. So it's a really good preventative measure, measure too. Wow. Okay. So this is great. So if we try some coherent breathing for at least seven minutes, but preferably longer before we go to sleep, that will help. When you have a nightmare and you wake up in the middle of the night panicking a little bit, because it does set your heart rate going, what are the best things you can do? Because sometimes you get stuck on, you know, trying to go back to sleep. And, you know, I know I've had it for sure. You go straight back into the nightmare that you want to get out of. So you don't want to go back to sleep. You don't want to just lie there because your mind's going over everything. What's your advice in those moments? Are you struggling to cope with your breakup or divorce? Are you feeling devastated, heartbroken, sad and anxious? If so, please know that you are not alone and there is help available. 
Sarah Davison, best known as the Divorce Coach, and her team of accredited coaches are here to offer you the support and guidance you need to navigate all areas of your breakup, take back your control, and start feeling happy again. Sarah will show you how to dial down those controlling negative emotions, unhook from your ex, get back in the driving seat of your life and design a future you are excited to live. Sarah has a range of solutions to support any breakup, including free guides, one-to-one coaching, her Heartbreak to Happiness virtual retreats, live retreats, and you can even train to be a breakup and divorce coach with Sarah too. Visit www.saradavison.com today and start to feel happy again. You don't want to just lie there because your mind's going over everything. What's your advice in those moments? Okay, so the first thing I'd say is, is another kind of little saying of mine, which is a nightmare is a dream that is shouting. A nightmare is a dream that is shouting. It's shouting for your attention. It wants to draw your attention to some aspect of the mind that is currently out of balance or unintegrated. Essentially, that's what trauma does, right? It pushes us out of balance or integration. So the first thing we want to do is let that dream know, hey, I'm listening. So how do we do that? How do we tell the dream no need to shout? Let it know you're listening. So write it down. Really, I would say this. Even if you don't want to write down any of your other dreams, write down your nightmares which is the opposite of what the new age school teaches us, which is, oh, never write down a nightmare, you'll manifest it into existence. Fucking hell. That is a one-way ticket to suppression, repression, and depression. Do the opposite. Do everything you can to tell the nightmare, I witness you. I see you. So you've woken up from a nightmare, write it down, draw it, dance it, write a poem about it. Do everything you can to discharge that traumatic energy of the nightmare that will still be held in the body, discharge it from the body and the mind onto the page. Discharge it from the mind by writing or drawing. Discharge it from the body by shaking or moving. So do everything you can to discharge the, the, uh, the nightmare down. Now, it's not that we write the nightmare down to get rid of it, but it's also not that we write the nightmare down to interpret it. We just, it's, the nightmare's like us. It just wants to be witnessed, not interpreted, not, not told what it means, you know, but just seen, right? So write the nightmare down and just see it. That's the first thing. Second thing to do would be to, um, I know this sounds crazy, but if you can even have a sense of gratitude, like thanking the nightmare. Now for people with PTSD who might feel re-traumatized by the nightmare, that's going to be a difficult thing to do because you'll be saying, oh, well, but this was a re-traumatizing nightmare. This wasn't a healing one. It's not so much about kind of um, compartmentalizing what type of nightmare it was. It's about acknowledging that the nightmare has tried its best. So this sounds strange, but if you can just energetically kind of thank or have gratitude to the nightmare, however traumatic it was, for pointing out this part of the mind that remains unhealed. So like, thank you. You know, it's a bit like if you had cut your arm and you hadn't noticed and a stranger came up to you and said, oh, your arm's bleeding. Oh, thank you. God, I, I really hadn't noticed that. You know, we wouldn't kind of curse the stranger for pointing out that our arm is bleeding, you know, even though it's not good news. We just say, okay, thank, thank you for showing. So first thing, download it. Second thing, um, reset the nervous system. So if you wake up with a nightmare that's kind of traumatic or traumatizing, there's often going to be this response in the body. So again, breath work. Easiest way and quickest way to change your neurological state is through the breath. 
It is quicker than any medical drugs. It's quicker than thought. You can change your neurological state through thinking. Like if we sit here and think sexy thoughts, our body will change. Certain things will, you know, blood flow will go to certain parts of our body, right? We all know that. But it might take a few minutes, right? Kind of, you know, fantasizing about who you fancy or some sexual thing or something like that. The breath can change your neurological state in seconds. There is no quicker way. It's quicker than meds. I mean, I think the only thing that changes your neurological state quicker than your breath is to like take a hit of DMT or some like very strong psychedelic. You know, the breath is so, so quick. The brain listens to the lungs. It's like a, a, a broadband, I don't know, whatever the best internet connection is, it's straight there. So go into breathing. And the breathing, I'd say, after you've had a nightmare is, again, very easy to find this on, online. Four, seven, eight breath. The four, seven, eight breath, which is to breathe in for four. So breathing in, two. Three, four, and hold. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, and breathe out. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and do a few rounds of that. So the four, seven, eight breath is very tranquilizing. Number one. Is that talk- through the, does it matter if it's through the nose or the mouth? Because I know sometimes that matters. Breathing in matter. through the nose and out through the mouth is good for four, seven, eight breath. But if, you're, if your nose is blocked, then you could, you could change that around. But yeah, nasal breathing is generally much better. Sometimes an exhale through the mouth is better because it puts some pressure on certain glands around the back of the throat, which is supposed to help too. Um, but four, seven, eight breath, it's got double the exhale. So... Um, Essentially, every time you breathe in, you're mildly stimulating the fight or flight system. And every breathing, every time you breathe out, you're mildly stimulating the parasympathetic. So if you can double your exhale, you move yourself into parasympathetic response, which is the relaxation response. So 478 has got double relaxation response because it's got, sorry, it's got relaxation response because you double the out breath. And also it's got that hold. Now that hold in the middle actually raises levels of CO2 in the bloodstream. And it's not as simple as we just want oxygen. For breathing, we want a balance of CO2 and oxygen. So that seven hold raises levels of CO2, which helps to dilate the blood capillaries, which helps the oxygen from the next breath kind of go in deeper. So it sounds like, oh, we shouldn't be holding our breath, but actually the breath in, the hold, and then the breath out is all kind of perfectly in in sync. Uh, and again, you can just Google that four, seven, eight breath. You'll find it on YouTube and everything like that. Very simple. A few rounds of that uh, would be really good to do before uh, falling back asleep. And then another thing, if you find yourself in the middle of the night and you can't get back to sleep, uh, yoga nidra, which is the practice of uh, hypnagogic mindfulness. So resting in that um, uh, dr- that place in between wakefulness and sleep kind of certain meditation you can do there really really deeply relaxing and because it's usually listening to an audio it's like a guided meditation with a body scan and stuff really good way to stop yourself going into uh, self-attacking thoughts or ruminating thoughts about your heartbreak Mm, I love it fantastic okay and then another thing I hear a lot Chai I'd love to hear what you think about this is when you wake up in the morning sometimes you have this little moment of everything's okay, you open your eyes, and then it's like a tsunami hits you of actually, oh no, this is all going on. And that's the first thing that happens in the morning, which quite often frames the rest of your day, or at least the next few hours. Mm. Have you got any tips for that? Yeah, so there's something called the hypnopompic state, which is the Mm -hmm. state of waking up. So the state of falling asleep, the hypnagogic, most people are aware of because... 
especially if you're heartbroken because you spend quite a lot of time in there because you can't get to sleep, right? It's that transitional state. The hypnopompic state, though, is often over in a flash because we wake up with an alarm clock. But if you don't, have you noticed there's this bit where you've stopped sleeping and dreaming, your eyes are still closed, but you wouldn't say you're fully awake yet. That's the hypnopompic. And you can catch it even when the alarm clock's on, actually. You can still kind of find that little space. And in that space, you know, we mentioned the egocentric preference system, which shuts off during the hypnagogic when you're falling asleep. It also takes a minute to boot up. So you can have this moment where you wake up in the morning and that part of you that kind of keeps out the, the ego mind that keeps out what you don't want to look at isn't switched on yet. So often these in that first kind of 30 seconds to a minute upon awakening, you really see yourself as you are. And that trauma you've been trying not to look at or that kind of depression that you have, boom, it's there. And that's horrible because it's it's the start to your day. Um, and it can be really, you know, debilitating. But it is the truth of who we are. You get this flash of truth. And I found in my, as we were saying before we came on, I found in my kind of recovery from the end of my marriage. This was literally only about three or four months ago. Um, I went from kind of, God, 80, 90% depression to over our, over the next year and a half down to about five or 10% depression. But up until four months ago, I still had, yeah, five or 10% of just, just depressed, just sad. And then one morning I woke up and it would always be the hypnopompic, that waking up period, boom, it would hit me. Ah, you're not married anymore, or you failed, or you're heartbroken, or, you know, all those things, all those self-attacking thoughts. And one morning I woke up and it wasn't there. It was just this space. And I was like, fuck, where's the depression? And it wasn't there. And I was worried I'd jinx it. So I tried, not, tried to kind of not say anything. And then the next morning I woke up again and it had gone. And the next morning I was like, fuck, it's gone. Now it hadn't gone spontaneously. I know exactly why it had gone. It had gone because of a very strong conversation I had with a friend, uh, a Buddhist friend who, you know, I used to live in a Buddhist center for seven years and Buddhists are often not that good at being direct because they're more concerned with being compassionate, but he was direct and it triggered me. He said, Charlie, you have got to get over this. You have got to get over it. And I hated it. I was like, so simplistic. How can you say that? Blah, blah, blah. But it was true. It was really what I needed to hear. I had that and I had a breakthrough with my therapist. And then I had a real realization of why Jade's behavior was how it was. And that it actually, I kind of helped to depersonalize that. So it's three things that came together. My point is... I could chart my journey to recovery through my sleep and dreams, even to the point where when I felt that I was fully back to myself a year and a half later, I even saw that reflected in the hypnopompic. So anyone who's going through this, I'd say, you know, really keep a dream diary or be aware of your sleep. If you're in the midst of a breakup, it's going to be fucking horrible because you're going to notice, yes, I'm having nightmares. Yes, I'm having sleepless nights. Yes, I, I wake up in the middle of the night, can't get back to sleep, all of that. But if you keep charting it, you'll notice that as you move into the recovery stage, those start to reduce. Oh, I just slept an hour longer than I usually sleep. Oh, wow. I just had a dream that wasn't a nightmare. So you, you can chart your progress through it. And yeah, I found that for me, when I knew that I had really moved into recovery stage was when in that hypnopompic, there was no depression. Um, and yeah, that was four months yeah. ago and it hasn't come back. 
And it's been really great to be able to engage the world again, almost two years later, and feel like myself again. That is awesome, Charlie. I think you're right. I think sometimes things happen and improve, but we don't notice the improvements because we're not taking note of anything we just yes. it's slow it's not like wham overnight you know that it's a slow gradual build-up to a point where you suddenly go oh so actually by keeping that diary you can actually think well actually I it may feel sometimes I've gone two steps back and my heart is broken again but actually look at all the progress I have made and if you've got that documented in a dream diary I guess you can look back on that right exactly a dream diary could might as well be called a psychological diary because the dreams reflect what is going on in your inner world. You know, if, if someone asked me to, you know, if I was a police detective or something, and I had to find out about a certain person and I, and I went into their, their, their room and I found their daytime diary and I found their dream diary. If I really wanted to know who that person was, the character analysis, forget their daytime diary full of who they think they are, who they want to be, who the ego presents them at. Look at their dream diary. There you're going to find who are they secretly in love with, what traumas from childhood are still affecting them, um, you know, where the, what are their anxieties, what are their fears, what are their phobias, where are their anxieties, all of that is laid out in the dream diary. So if you want to know who you are, look to your dreams and be compassionate because when you look to your dreams, yeah, it's going to be fucking zombie apocalypses and that's okay. You know, I had this terrible shame of being this sleep and dreams guy and I was just having apocalypse dreams every night because that's how it felt it was the end of my world so of course the dreams were about the end of the world it was so obvious so in many ways there was actually a comfort to the nightmares because I was like oh well at least I'm not mad I really do feel this way you know it's not just me making it up it's like night it's like no it really feels like the end of the world and that's okay and then when I chart my dreams now and I see the appearance of my my former wife now in such a different way as she was in the early days in the dreams. Um, you know, you see that progress laid out. Yeah, so powerful, Charlie. Well, thank you. I know everything you've shared, my listeners are going to really find helpful and useful. So thank you for all your tips and advice. How can people find out more about you or maybe join you on some training? Sure. So my website, charliemorley.com, has got everything um weirdly all the stuff i've been talking about now is in the new book which doesn't come out till october um but it is available for pre-order now on amazon it's called wake up to sleep and all of the courses the six-week courses that are based on wake up to sleep at the moment all of the ones for the next few months are only for veterans um so if there are any veterans listening especially female veterans then there are still some course places for those but i don't actually have any civilian courses running at the moment because my focus for this summer is really on the on the veterans community um but when the book comes out in october that will all change and i'll start doing loads more courses too uh, but there's the oh there's the monthly drop in there's a free monthly meetup i do which is really cool we have usually about 100 people we had 28 different countries attending last sunday uh and that's on I think the next one's at the end of July and that's free and it's uh, a chance to get around and share your dreams with with a group of people. So that's on. And then I'm on Instagram and all of that. So yeah, people will find me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Charlie. I've got one final question for you that I ask all my guests. The podcast is called Heartbreak to Happiness. And I think it's really important to know and identify what happiness is for you so that you can spot it even when times are pretty tough. So what is happiness for you, Charlie? 
Oh God, what is happiness for me? Um, I think helping others, helping others. I've noticed that every time I help myself, the happiness is fleeting and fades. Every time I help another, it lasts for fucking ages. So I think probably happiness is helping others. I love that. Well, you definitely helped me, Charlie, with these sessions that I did with you. And I know that you've helped a lot of people just by being here today and sharing all that information. So thank you so much for being such an amazing guest. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. That's it for today's episode. Please head on over to charliemorley.com to find out more about Charlie and how you might be able to work with him. And I look forward to joining me on our next episode. That's it for today's episode of Heartbreak to Happiness. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review to win a free ticket to one of Sara's virtual retreats. The retreats are a transformative combination of live webinars with Sara herself, coupled with empowering online video programs designed to help you cope better with your breakup and start feeling happy again. For more details, head on over to heartbreaktohappinesspodcast.com, where you can also get a copy of Sara's free gift. Thank you and join us again on the next episode for another dose of Heartbreak to Happiness. Heartbreak to Happiness.